namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasami So if I may offer some reflections then on Dhamma practice. I have a, a nice bird feeder outside my window and I've had a, a group of uh, golden finches coming around, very colorful. I'm just watching their behavior because it's right by my window so I can just watch them. Finch behavior. Finches are very... Uh, I don't want to use anthropomorphic words. They're very kind of agitated. Jumping around, looking around, hassling each other, looking around and eating some sunflower seeds and looking around, checking out. So it's a kind of agitation, flurry on their energy. And then if you look at a heron, it's the kind of exact opposite, isn't it? You see a heron, if you're not looking, you only see him, it's so still. Just still with its murderous intent to get a frog or something. So, we're all humans, but we're also finches and herons. And all of us have different kind of conditioning and personalities. And we're not trying to make herons into finches or finches into herons. We're not trying to change our personalities into something that is different. But I think what, what we're trying to understand is how our, how our inner life is driven by unskillful things and how our personality then can be warped or distorted by unskillful things. And then also that our personality is also motivated by very wholesome and good things. And that that part of our personality manifests in a very helpful and and beautiful way, in a way that is is beneficial for ourselves and, and others. And that kind of understanding comes from uh, uh, trying to just see the nature of our inner world rather than trying to be different. And I think a lot, a lot of us just suffer from things like self-disparagement, self-criticism, because we're just trying to be different people, different from what is. But that attempt to be different might be very noble, but if it is not, not coming from insight, not coming from understanding how the mind works, then we'll always be missing the mark, because we're just coming from some good intention, nice ideal, but we don't understand why things are the way they are, why uh, why we suffer and why we don't suffer. So the, the, the path of Buddhism is trying to um, get us to uh, awaken and, and, and use our reflective minds. We have, you know, we, we live as human beings, we have, we have a moral side, to our nature, we have a, a social side to our nature, we have a physical side that we have to be aware of, and we have this capacity to to reflect, to be aware, and I try to indicate that in this meditation by uh, suggesting to bring up this perception that the body is happening in awareness, or that sound is in awareness, and when you when you I think when, when we do that exercise, just toggling between those two, then you begin to see that awareness knows. Awareness knows that the, the body is uh, 
feeling hot or there's pressure without any without any judgment about it just knows how how it is and then that just that idea that uh, you know like conventionally I'm here and the fan is up there and my body is feeling the wind of the fan on my face that's true but another way you could say is that this whole scenario is in awareness awareness contains it and it's a different way it's a different way of looking at it it's not some absolute uh, philosophical position but it's a it's more like a way of perceiving life it's a way of looking at life and from that way of, of, of observing you begin to be much more objective about not just the fan and the feeling of the fan but the inner movement of your emotions, of your thoughts, of your memories, uh, all the things that um, create a sense of who you are in the world and how you respond and react to the world. And the central theme, I would say, the central training in Buddhist meditation is to cultivate present moment awareness, to make that very, very important, present moment awareness. Now that is difficult to do because we, we tend to wander and think about the past and future, but it's not something that demands you feel any particular way. It doesn't say that you have to feel happy or unhappy, that you feel compassionate or not compassionate. It's not, not, a, not an evaluation of what your inner world is doing. Rather, it's an awakening to what your inner outer, uh, this whole world, uh, is doing. So it's not a judgment. It's not saying anything about the quality of the experience. Just saying, notice experience as it is in the present moment, and that is uh, that is emphasized, I think, in all mystical traditions, and it's it's terribly important because if we if we can't if we can't really attend to the way things are, uh, and we're caught in in um, trying to get something else, or we're trying to get rid of something, or we have uh, evaluations, we're trying to become someone else from some role models, whatever, we don't really notice the way things are, we can never get it right. Because it's only in that present moment awareness you know things are, then you can truly see cause and effect. You really see how it's working. So present moment awareness is a training that is enhanced by meditation. If you If you sit down and you decide to whatever object of meditation one decides to do, you know, whether it's a breath meditation or a body meditation or a mantra or whatever, that's going to require a very basic intention. And that intention is to do the work, to watch the breath, to chant the mantra, whatever. And that intention is, is underpinned by the intention to be present and know what you're doing and know how you're doing it present moment awareness. And if you keep remembering that that's what's important, um, and you keep doing that for 45 minutes, then what you've done in your makeup, in, in the way your mind functions, is that you've given power to the capacity to be aware of the way things are. Right? And that's a very important power. Now, even, even if you thought, for the meditation, your mind seemed to wander a lot, and you're restless or whatever. Just the fact that you made the deliberate intention, I'm just going to try to notice my breath, or notice the way things are. You keep remaking that intention, don't you? You wander off, and you find you're thinking about work or whatever, and then, oh yeah, 
you come back, you keep remaking, reintending, reintending, reintending. And this kind of determination is not, it's not from a place of trying to get rid of, it's not a pl from a place of trying to become anything, it's simply from a place of, well, what is this moment really like? What does it really mean? So it's a kind of precision. I was thinking about this word precision because I'm, I'm trying to make a, a jig for finger joints. <laughs> and I have, to, I have to get this jig down to like a 32nd of an inch. You know, to get the accuracy right or the whole thing won't work. Um, it's quite hard for me. So I was just thinking, well, what, is, what, is, what do we mean by precision in, in, our, in, our, uh, in our Buddhist life, in, in meditative life, in a contemplative life? It seems to me what precision is, is the capacity to really, really know this moment just as it is, without any additions, without any commentary, without any demand that it be different than it is. That's not the end, but that's the beginning. That's the beginning. You kind of really, really wake up to this moment just as it is. And that's the ongoing mantra you kind of hear from Buddhism. This is the way it is now. And, and that, I mean, it's obvious. What other way could it be? It's sort of a truism, isn't it? It's a tautology. You know, it can only be this way. But actually to, to really know this moment and to stop and listen to this moment and really know it just the way it is, is very valuable. It's very, very valuable. Because then you are truly awakened. Then you are truly awakened. And if, you, if, you can, if I can sustain that, if we can sustain that for two moments or three moments, what we see is we can see how, what kind of elements are coming into consciousness, elements which are wholesome or unwholesome. If we can sustain that well for five minutes, say, for five minutes, that kind of clarity of presence, and then within that five minutes, um, uh, let's say, uh, let, let, yeah, let's say you're meditating, and you can and you can sustain that presence on the body for five minutes, and then you start to feel discomfort in the hips. Say, okay? five minutes, and discomfort comes up in the right hip. Say, uh, what you've now seen is you you've sustained a, uh, the body in awareness. Right? You sustain body awareness. And in that you see the change, you see the arising of discomfort and pain, and you see how from that discomfort and pain you start to think, and you start to get restless. You see how you think about, oh, the clock, should I move, should I not move? You see how the mind becomes agitated with pain. And you have a choice. You have a choice. You see, as the mind becomes agitated, you say, ah, oh, I think I'll just notice pain just as it is. I think all of us who are meditators have done this, have done this to some degree, otherwise we wouldn't be here probably. But you, 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 make, it, you make a decision then, you make a decision. Rather than reacting to the pain, I'm going to just notice the pain just as it is. And you come back to that same primary intention. Pain feels this way. Or discomfort, say, maybe discomfort's better. And then you, you see that you can be with discomfort and be peaceful, or discomfort can make you restless. You begin to see how yeah, okay, there is discomfort, but I don't have to attach to it. I don't have to follow it. You get this insight, don't you? You get this insight. And from that insight, you see, well, what really va what's really important now, take care of the body, don't hurt it, but come back to peaceful coexistence with discomfort. Come back to that. And all of us do that. And what's interesting about discomfort and pain in the meditative life is that it's a great teacher. 
it's a, it's a really wonderful, it, certainly for those of you who are sleepy, if you get pain, it's good, keeps you awake. But it's a, it's a really good teacher because it's one of the, it's a kind of basic paradigm of how we suffer, of how we suffer as human beings. So discomfort comes in the body, and what have I done? First of all, as I said, I've sustained awareness long enough to notice the arising of something, the arising of the unpleasant, discomfort, right? And through experience, I see that, oh, when discomfort arises, I just want to shift my body. I want to shift. But now I notice, oh, this wanting, I want to shift my body. And I, no, I said, no, that's, that's restless. What does restlessness feel like? And I come back to present moment awareness. And I come back to the discomfort. But now the discomfort, I'm not moving on it. I'm not reacting to it. I'm able to be with it. And it's peaceful. Now, at some point, that discomfort gets to pain, and I have to move because the body needs to move, and that's fine. You know, pain is useful. It tells us, get out of here, you know, you're going to get hurt. But in that five or ten minutes, you have a really beautiful lesson on how the mind works. It's not just about the body, it's about the mind. And that lesson is insightful. This is what, say, if you think about like Vipassana meditation, um, that, that capacity to observe the way things are to observe change, to observe the arising of the unpleasant, to observe the attachment to the unpleasant, to make a choice and not just get restless, but go back to just this moment the way it is, is very insightful, very insightful. And that registers in your mind in an intuitive way, not just in an intellectual way, it's not just about reading a book. Now you've understood something intuitively, uh, not abstractly, not from someone else's information, not from a book, not from a teacher, but from your own visceral experience. And that begins to um, introduce into your mind right understanding. You understand something. Even if you can't even verbalize it, you've understood something. Ah, oh, yeah, the mind works that way. And all of us who are, you know, have been meditating a while, you know, I talk to anyone, when you started meditation, how long could you sit? Five minutes? Two minutes? You know, it was really hard. Restless body and, and, and all of that. But somehow, observing, watching, observing, watching, and learning, oh, oh, pain is okay, discomfort's okay. I remember listening to a couple of young men after a Goenka retreat, I think, and they were kind of comparing notes on what had happened to them for the retreat. And I said, what do you have? What did you, how did you do on your retreat? And one said, oh, I had pain all retreat. Oh, he said, you're really lucky. I had sleepiness all retreat. I didn't know what was going on. So the one had pain, and he had energy. He had brightness. He had to look at it. Not that I wish you pain, and we're not into self-torture, but there's something about that lesson which is very important. So when we, when we can introduce into our minds this strong intention, very strong intention, to notice the way things are, present moment awareness, we have space, we have insight, and insight leads to wisdom. That wisdom leads to right intention, and right intention leads to right action, and, and such like. What can you take away from meditation? Well, you, you, you take away from it a certain amount of restfulness, maybe, a certain amount of clarity, but I think the most important to take away from it is the determination to bring this attitude of present moment awareness to everything you do in life, whether it is mundane or ordinary, or brushing your teeth or doing something very complicated. And 
that intention to do that needs to be reiterated, reinforced constantly. You need to kind of do that. Uh, you have to remind yourself all the time, what's it like now? And that is what we that attitude of reinforcing an intention is called determination, aditana. Like when, when we talk about a New Year's resolution, you know, someone makes a New Year's resolution, what are they doing? They say, well, I'm not going to smoke cigarettes for the next year. And someone says that. So they make an intention. And then as January goes by and they get stressed out and they find a cigarette in their hand, they have to reinforce, no, 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 no smoking, no smoking, no smoking. And what does that do for them? It makes them aware of the desire to smoke. And as they become aware of the desire for smoke, they make an intention not to smoke, they begin to have some power over their own minds. Now, in the same way, we, you know, I doubt if we have very many smokers left in, in this room, but not a problem. But, but in the same way, we have, we have inner habits, not just physical habits, but we have habits where we lose a sense of presence or we're driven by things which are a very habitual, uh, maybe unexamined, that causes suffering, that causes suffering in some kinds of way, where our personalities get distorted. You know, so like a person might be very um, uh, charming, you know, might, might like Kirby Ajahn Chah was a very chariz- charismatic man, tremendous charisma. And Ajahn Sumida once asked him, why are you so charismatic? And Ajahn Chah said, oh, it's my hook. I get them into Dharma. So you could see, but, but someone who, who had a lot of charisma used it then to manipulate people for power, and that would, be, that would be really destructive, wouldn't it? So the personality might be charismatic, but then the use of charisma from compassion or from greed would be skillful or unskillful. The same another person might be very quiet, very kind of solitary, not... Not, in, not into people, very, very solitary. And that solitude might be very skillful. The person might be very, very quiet, very, you know, very calm, very calm. Or the person might use that solitude because they're fearful. They don't enter into complexity or into people relationships because they're afraid. So that kind of solitude with the fear would be unskillful. And it would perpetuate fear. Whereas the other kind of solitude would be quite skillful. So, as I was saying earlier, that it's not about our personalities where we're coming from. And the only way we can see where we're coming from is this, this capacity to know the way things are, just the way they are, just the way they are. Now, as, as we work with the various kind of characteristic traits that we all have uh, in different ways, um, just think about if you can sustain present moment awareness with the way things are, then you've got a chance of that, that the, the mind is, 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 is centered, and then if something comes into that mind, like fear, say, or aversion, or whatever, uh, you've got a chance of not following it, because you know you're present. If the mind is just aimless, just thinking about this or that, or you know, just restless, uh, eating, looking at uh, iPad, or you know, just aimlessly wandering, then there's a kind of vacuum there, a vacuum of presence. And in that vacuum, things come up. You know, you, you, get, you get waylaid by memories or, or, or fears, and then your mind just runs with them, just runs with them. And then 
then there's no real freedom. There's a kind of victimization. The person becomes a victim to all these things. So when we, when we make the intention to present moment awareness, we try to really act that out in the way we're living. So classically, we're always hearing this in Buddhism. It's like when, you're, when you eat, eat. When you uh, chop vegetables, chop vegetables. When you are uh, doing gardening, doing gardening. When you're talking to your parents, talk to your parents. And so that you need to make an intention. You need to reinforce that intention. So if you're, if you're, if you're preparing your meal, and you know you're doing the, let's say you're doing breakfast here, and you're doing the fruit salad. We had a big debate this morning about whole fruit or cut fruit, but that's another thing. Uh, and you're cutting up the vegetables. You make an intention now to cut the vegetables. Doesn't sound like much, but if you're if you're really good at cutting the vegetables, you can be thinking about all kinds of things. Now this isn't like slowing everything down and, and chopping, but it's like really just being present to what you do, being present to what you do. Then when you're like when you're when you're uh, talking with someone, to be really like how do you communicate? How do I communicate? What is communication? And there you can learn a lot. If you're if you're really present to the way things are and you're talking with someone, you can see so much reactivity in your mind, so much sort of sense of, of doubt or being put upon, or because the mind is very, very responsive to other people. And you learn a lot about yourself that way. You learn a lot about yourself. And from those insights, you begin to see what part of your character, uh, your personality, is driven by fear, what part of it is driven by greed, what part of it is driven by um, ignorance, and what part of it's really skillful and wholesome, and you and you learn, you learn very skillfully that yeah, that's a that's a really good trait. I'll try to I'll try to develop that and make that stronger in myself. And this way of talking with people to get something from them or put them down, I'll try to be more aware of that as that comes up. So again, you reinforce present moment awareness. So let's say a person that you find, let's say a person who uses speech in a kind of Put down way, they use speech to just um, uh, a kind of arrogant, um, bullying, put down way, and they begin to see. Well, that doesn't bring me happiness. It doesn't bring beauty in my relationships. It's not, you know. And I get a lot of regret and remorse for speaking that way. Then that insight. Oh yeah, I'd like to work on that. I'd like to be more aware of the arising of this kind of put down speech. Now, that's not a judgment that that kind of speech is wrong. It's not saying you should never talk that way. No, no, it's saying that when that arises, if I have present moment awareness, if I'm really, really focused on the present moment, I'll see that, that tendency to put someone down. I'll see it arising, and I'm going to try not to go there. It's like giving up cigarettes. I'm not going to try to go there. And if the habit's very, very strong, I'll probably go there. I'll probably say, uh, you're, a, you're a turkey, you're hopeless. And then I'll walk away. But because I'm sincere... And I see the beauty of compassion, and I see the, the, the remorse of, of um, unkindness. I want to move to a compassion. It's natural, isn't it? Compassion is something that is really uplifting. I want to move my heart that way. But still, still I, have these, uh, I can see these tendencies coming up. Now, I'm not saying that they're wrong, but I'm saying if I, don't, if I just know them as they come up, I don't have to follow it. And it's the same like with discomfort of the body. I see the discomfort coming up, and I learn, I learn that even though that discomfort is there, I don't have to follow it. I can make, I can make a different kind of a choice. I can make a choice that, no, no, it's okay, it's just discomfort. Just discomfort. So the same like in speech. I, 
the the impulse arises to put someone down, and I, and I notice an impulse. Oh, I see. This is some power game or whatever it is. No, I'm not going to go there. And I begin to free myself from the impulsive nature of personality, and I begin to able to manifest the, the really beautiful qualities of, of compassion and wisdom uh, in, in a way which is not, um, which is which is which comes from insight and authenticity rather than just some idea that I should be compassionate. The more we, the more we reinforce this, this capacity for present moment awareness, the more we um, make that intention stronger, uh, the less the unskillful states of mind can overwhelm us. They just can't come in there. If I'm, if I'm present to the way things are, uh, I, I, I don't create that vacuum where things can come in, right? So it's very, very important. And, and the more I do that in a sustained way, I begin to get the sense of where the joy of, of, of the spiritual life lies. The joy of the spiritual life lies not in just having happy states of mind, not in just getting, getting what you want, but actually like noticing these things and, and, and not being victimized by them. Isn't that one of the greatest joys where, where you have some, you know, some impulse which you followed for a long time? I was talking to someone about public speaking and we were comparing notes about public speaking we both said how how afraid we were of public speaking and and then we just bit the bullet gave gave talks watched our fear got through the fear and now it's quite fun <laughs> and to see that to see that that you're in a situation where you habitually have suffered and, and, and life has been difficult and then you 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 work that through by being aware by being aware by not uh, acting on it and then suddenly you're in that situation and you're not reacting to it. Not because you've, you've done some kind of control thing, but because it's not there anymore. That reaction isn't there anymore. It's died. The fuel is dialed. Fuel has gone away. There's no, no energy to it. And that is wonderful. That's a kind of happiness that you get from purification. Now, that's different than a happiness like from, from comfort. So... A friend and I were comparing that note notes about giving public talks and being anxious in groups and so on. What would make me comfortable would be not to be in a group. Then I wouldn't have the anxiety. But that wouldn't make me free. That wouldn't make me free at all. It would just make me uh, more afraid. More afraid. I'd always have to run away from situations of anxiety. But if I have present moment awareness and anxiety arises, oh, this is a chance. This is the opportunity just to know what is anxiety really like. What is it like? And that takes strength and courage and patience. And I, and I, and I feel it and I witness it. And I feel it and I witness it. I am, I am creating a quite a powerful mind, quite a powerful awareness, which is not going to get blown away by the situation of life. So it's, a, it's an awareness which is no longer um, conditioned by or dependent on on, on situation. It's not situational, it's free. So freedom isn't like having no emotions or having no negative emotions. It's not that. Freedom is knowing, oh, this has arisen. This is skillful. This is unskillful. Not going this way, but maybe going that way. That, and that's a, quite a, a beautiful kind of freedom. So even within your fears and angers and, and old habits, you say, well, that's just a habit. That's not who I really am. That's a wonderful kind of freedom. Wonderful kind of freedom. If, however, you think that freedom 
is some kind of ideal where emotionally you never feel anger, you never feel fear, you never feel greedy, and all the rest of it. And you set up a model of what freedom is. And then you try to plug in your personality into that model. You're going to suffer a lot. You know, I'm, monks do this a lot. We, you know, we, get, we have some very, very accomplished teachers and role models, very accomplished uh, enlightened beings that we can compare ourselves to. Exhibit ABC, <laughs> and and then we can we can um, say okay that's that's what I should be maybe, and then here I am, um, struggling young monk, and I'm not like that, and then I take that model of what I should be like, and then I compare myself to that I shouldn't be so I try to get that rid of that to become that, but that's not awareness, that's desire. That's not really wisdom, it's just um, attachment to ideals, isn't it? Um, one often reads about difficulty women, women have with body size, kids, teenagers, getting the right body size. Horrible kind of torture to, to always be thinking about your body size, always you know, worried about your body size. I mean, I never had that at school. We never, we just ran around and... You know, <laughs> those kinds of infos, maybe because I'm a boy. I was a boy, and many have different. But, but you know, society does that to us, you know, what, what, what we should be, how we should be, how, you know, what the, what the peer group does, or what the uh, in-group does, or whatever. And then if we try to model ourselves on that, and, and become something else, we're not really mindful. We're fearful. We're fearful. Whereas the transformation which takes place from mindfulness is from really understanding cause and effect. Really seeing that with these kinds of, um, with these kinds of practices, with this kind of awareness, with these kinds of intentions, I get a good result. I know that you can you can tell me what you want, but I know I get a good result. You may not like me, you may not like the way I look and what I dress, but I know I get a good result. So you're free of, free of external evaluation. External evaluation can be very helpful. Can say you know you're dumb or you 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 know your your language is really inappropriate. That can be very, very helpful, but that sense of really where where transformation takes place is always from your own heart, from your own wisdom, from your own strength. And 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 so that sense of idealism is not really what we're on about. It's more. It's always the language of Buddhism is the language of letting go, the language of non-grasping. So how do you let go of an arisen, unwholesome state of mind? Well, first of all, you have to know it. You know it's arisen. You have to know that's unwholesome. I'm not going to follow that. And then you have to be patient. So if I'm, if I'm um, speaking with someone and I use humor to put people down, say, and I see that that causes them confusion, it causes me regret and remorse, I make an intention. I'm going to not use humor to hurt people. But I've done it for 30, 40 years, and I find, oh, this is so easy. So I, I poke fun at people, and I say, that's hurtful. I don't want to do that. That's not compassionate. I want to, I want to change. That's a good, wholesome intention. But it's not, not a demand, I should never use humor. No, it's a suggestion to be awake, be awake. How does this intention to put someone down, how does that arise? And that's not attachment to an ideal. It's just feeling in my own heart that compassion brings harmony, that uh, compassion brings, feet, brings peace to the mind. Whereas 
cruelty and divis- brings divisiveness and unkindness and brings a lot of regret and remorse. And so our intentions are, are really the wholesome intention. They come from a teaching, but they come from our own investigation. You, you kind of really see that, yeah, this character, this personality is great this way, but this other way, this could be some work here. And that's good work, good wholesome work. And I, I, and I think the way the personality man, manifests, I think, for, in, in, in a sense of freedom in Buddhism would be, like I, I noticed with Ajahn Chah, he, he was, I often tell this story, but when we were, when, we were in, uh, when I was with him in Thailand, uh, he, he, uh, he, would, he had a, uh, a little cabin on stilts, and he would sit under the cabin uh, in a kind of reception area, uh, which was, was about six foot tall, and we'd sit under there on a terrazzo floor, and he would receive guests throughout the day. And we would just sit, and that was part of like satsang. We would learn from his responses to people. They'd come with their uh, family problems, or maybe uh, someone would come with problems in the monastery or problems in meditation. He'd just be there and listen and try to offer advice. And again, he was a very, very uh, engaging person and very strong, could be very forceful, a very charming, humorous. He could use many aspects of a, of, a, of a beautiful personality. But what was very interesting, that was interesting, how he would deal with different people. But oftentimes there'd be no one around then. And then maybe two or three monks, we'd just be sitting there with him. No one came, no one was asking any questions. And all of a sudden there was like no... There was no Ajahn Chah there. He was there physically, but there was no personality functioning. It's just emptiness. Now, if you wanted Ajahn Chah to be entertaining, then it, that felt very uncomfortable. But if you didn't didn't need that, and you just kind of plugged into, well, what's going on? What's it like now? You felt the deep silence and the deep compassion of the man. But there wasn't a personality manifesting as speech or action or whatever. And you sit there in this lovely silence for a while, and then someone would come, and would come, make some offerings, and then he would kind of come alive. It's not that he was asleep, he wasn't asleep, it was just like personality seemed to me to be a manifestation of situation rather than ego need. It, it arose from the context of the need of a situation. That's really interesting to watch. And it could, it could be not. Could, you know, Ajahn Chah could be not Ajahn Chah, as it were. No Ajahn Chah. So our personalities, we would say, in, in, in Buddhism, where they manifest the most, the, one of the ways we talk about that kind of perfect manifestation of personality is through the Brahma-viharas. These are the, the heart qualities of, of Buddhism that we're often encouraged to contemplate. And they're the qualities of empathy. They're the qualities of connectedness. So... As you all know, metta, metta is the is the quality of goodwill, and if 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 in goodwill is not like metta is defined as loving kindness oftentimes in, in texts, but perhaps more easy to get your head around it is just goodwill. And if you think about ill will, ill will is I I think about someone and I think yeah I hope I hope you break your leg, yeah I hope you fail, yeah uh, yeah I hope you don't. You know, I hope you get the flu before me, and so I get the raise, etc., etc. That's ill will, isn't it? You think about it. Well, good will is, yeah. I hope you get over the flu, and I, and I, you know, I hope you get a raise, and I hope your kids are all right. And, and that's a very connected kind of thing, isn't it? 
they're connected um, kind of sense. And that's very peaceful. That's very peaceful because it doesn't create any fear, any division. So, metta bhavana. And, and we're encouraged sometimes with this language of loving kindness. But sometimes that's, you can't necessarily have loving kindness to everyone. But you can not dwell in ill will. Like I can have a neighbor who is quite loud and obnoxious maybe next door and I just have to live in the neighborhood and the neighbor's there. I can maybe not really like his behavior, but I can prevent myself from dwelling in ill will. I can see my mind going towards ill will. You know, I, I hope your house burns down. I hope your dog bites you. You know, <laughs> I cannot do that. I can say, no, no, I'm not going that pathway. That's possible, right? And then maybe eventually I can say, may you be free from suffering. I can, I can bring on positive things. So metta has a kind of range of possibilities, but it's basically the sense of you and I are brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. You and I have karma that we have to somehow figure out. You and I have bodily pain, we have familial conditioning, we have social conditioning, we want to be happy. You know, we're in the same, same boat. Um, I remember when, when um, Pol Pot died, I think I was at uh, Amaravati, and you know, Pol Pot was the monster of Cambodia, right? He's a genocidal sociopath. And there was some picture in the, in the newswires of uh, Pol Pot, the, the, the funeral pyre, the, the burning that they used to burn his body was, was a bunch of wood and some uh, uh, tires. It was kind of really the most degraded kind of picture of this, this horrible human being. And everyone was sort of, we're talking about it, whoever's talking about it, kind of feeling, yeah, he, you know, he's a horrible person, you know, it's kind of hatred, hatred in everyone's mind, justifiably so. He was, like, I was a monster. And Ajahn Sumedho said, yeah, maybe his dog liked him. <laughs> and what do you mean his dog liked him? I was, you know, and it was a sense of, no one should like this man. You know, he's a horrible, horrible monster. And I just said, yeah. He was trying to bring up a sense of metta. You know, not dwelling in ill will, even towards a monster. An interesting kind of take on it. And everyone's reaction to it was kind of strong too. So anyway, metta is, is one of the ways we talk about a personality that manifests from non-ego. From non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. It's, it's, it's goodwill, isn't it? Goodwill. And then karuna is, is the sense of empathy. So, uh, so let back. Metta is the sense of empathy that we're all in this together. You know, you and I suffer. We want to be free from suffering. Male, female, young, old, whatever, animals, humans. So karuna is the empathy of, of, of for those who are less doing less well than us. Uh, sickness. Or, or loss, or, so we feel that, I think Karuna is the easiest of these, where we see, um, like I've been reading a book about the Syrian, what's going on in Syria, horrible, just horrible, what these people are going through, it's just, it breaks your heart. And, and that comes naturally, don't you? You see these refugees going across the Mediterranean, trying to find refuge in Greece or Italy, and they're being pushed out of Libya, pushed out of Syria. No one wants them in Europe. I mean, a horrible, horrible kind of situation. And and that empathy that we have, and I and I often because my parents are refugees from Europe, and my brother was born in Germany. My my refugees from my my parents are refugees from Latvia. My brother was born in '45, two months before the war. I often think, what was my mother going through? She was running from Latvia. 
in a war zone, having a child, you know, I think, God, how difficult that would be. So when I see, when I see pictures of refugees, it sort of says, wow, that, that's a tough one. And that sense of empathy is, 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 is what we call karuna, or compassion. When I see someone who is you know, uh, in bad straits, I, I, you know, I feel that naturally. And it's the opposite of cruelty. You know, cruelty is the opposite. Tendency to be cruel towards someone uh, is very in, invested in, in um, ego, a lot of ego. Mudita is the third of these, and that's the empathy of joy. And that one, I, 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 I see in my mind that, you know, we have joy when someone is, is, um, does something really beautiful and you appreciate their beauty or, or um, someone is generous and you appreciate their generosity. There's a kind of joy in the heart, isn't there? And, and that joy is a kind of empathetic joy. It's like a connection a connection to life. We, we, we notice it sometimes, like with flowers. You look at a flower and, and you just allow, you know, it can bring you a lot of happiness, a flower, because you're now no longer preoccupied with your own drama, but you're looking at beauty and you're allowing that beauty to lift your heart. I was, I was talking with uh, someone, I often talk about the way that worked for my mother. You know, my mother, when she was... She, was, she died at 96, but she had macular degeneration, so she couldn't see well. She couldn't walk very well. Her hearing was bad. Um, taste buds weren't that great. A lot of pain, osteoporosis and arthritis. And so the sense world, the sense world wasn't a very pretty place. There was a lot of negative, a lot of tiredness and exhaustion. She had no, nothing wrong with her except old age and osteoporosis and all the things of old age. So it was not a, not a pleasant uh, realm to be in. So we, I, I, I kind of made her a, a garden on the terrace, and we had lots of pot plants. And I, and I just observed her, how when she went into that area with the pot plants, it took a lot. I had to get a ramp, get her wheelchair over the ramp, and then you know, it was quite an effort. So get her, to get her from her room onto the patio, I had to do a lot of persuading, even though she loved it. And then she could only be there maybe for half an hour before she was exhausted. But that half hour where she was with flowers and with smell and with a touch of the green really uplifted her, Uplift, took her away from her uh, considerable uh, bodily discomforts into a state of, of joy, into a state of joy. And then she told me, I, I, she said she would just dwell on that joy for hours afterwards. She'd bring that up. And for me, I think that's what Mudita is about. You know, it's not about sense pleasure, like sense pleasure, like if you, if you absorb into some fascinating uh, movie with lots of action and music and so on, that's just absorbing into sense pleasure, and that'll make you restless. But that, I think there is something in us which is joyous, it is, right? And that your mind can feel very uplifted. You look at the deer, right? You see the deer, everyone feels uplifted by the deer, except if they're eating my lilacs. <laughs> then you feel different then I have to go to Metta <laughs> but, but so what, where, is, where is joy in our lives not just a sensual distraction but that connectedness to life connectedness to people it's there it's very very important 
when someone like uh, with children we do it very easily a child has some some something quite like lovely that she's done plays a piece of music or uh, writes a paper a little or sews something fancy and and mom looks at it and says oh that's great mom's really happy they had a really uplifted heart and you could see that personality that kind of personality is also not preoccupied with themselves not preoccupied with the ego they have the space of mind to look to someone else and say, oh, good on you. So mudita is the opposite of jealousy. Jealousy and envy uh, crush joy. Right? People say to me, uh, I say, I'm going on pilgrimage to India. They say, oh, I wish I was going. That's not joy. <laughs> That's envy. And it's not happy. No, it's good for you. You're, you can go. <laughs> I'm going to stay <laughs> Not a happy state of mind. So mudita is like this kind of sense of uplift. And again, because the mind's not preoccupied with the ego. The last of these, what we call the Brahma Viharas, and Brahma it means divine, and Vihara means abiding. So it's that which is divine in us, say. The last is the Upeka. And Upeka is, a, 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 is peacefulness, peacefulness, peaceful coexistence. So how does that relate to empathy? Well, to me, I think it's empathy with Dharma. And Dharma is the way things are. Dharma is the way, this is the way it is now. It's that empathy, yeah, it's this way. It's, it feels this way. And when you keep connecting to that, you're practicing upeka. Because empathy requires, I get out of the way, and I feel this moment. Physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, whatever you want. I, I'm really with this moment. And that comes back to that sense of precision. When I really, when I really know discomfort as discomfort, there's a precision there. You see, that takes you to upeka. Or even, even there's something more strong, like, like anger. If you can stay with anger, it just feels this way, wait it out, you know, you, 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 you're developing upeka. And, and upeka is the result. You're practicing upeka as well as getting the result. So these four, the metta, which is goodwill, karuna, which is compassion, mudita, which is joy, and upeka, which is peace, those four, I would say, define uh, the manifestation, where, 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 uh, where the enlightened being comes from in terms of their personality manifestation, but how that manifests is different. So one teacher is charismatic, and one teacher is very solitary, very quiet. One teacher says a lot. One teacher doesn't say anything, different ways of manifesting. But the point of it is not the manifestation, but where it's coming from. You're coming from a sense of openness and compassion and empathy. So, so I, would, I would encourage you to try to develop this kind of precision of presence. What's it like now? Not as a question, but as, a, as an, an awakened attitude, again and again and again and again. And that opens up um, a tremendous amount of understanding. Okay, I'll leave that for your reflection. <laughs>